an important food, a healthy food, and a basic food that can be served in more than a hundred different ways. Hello and welcome to the Fat for Weight Loss Show. My name is Aaron and I am your host for today's episode. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, let me introduce myself. Firstly, I am from Australia, if you hadn't already guessed from the accent, and I run a ketogenic food blog called Fat for Weight Loss, found at fatforweightloss.com.au. And the aim of this podcast is to dig into the world of nutrition, fitness, and everything in between. I'm a nutritional therapist and an advanced sports exercise nutritional advisor. However, I'm not a doctor, so I cannot give you any medical advice. This also applies to any guests involved in this show. Please make sure you consult your doctor before making any changes to your diet or medication. You can find me on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Fat for Weight Loss for delicious keto recipes, meal plan videos, and drool-worthy food photography. So let's get right into it. In this episode, it is my absolute pleasure to be interviewing the endurance elite athlete and coach, Zach Bitter. Zach currently holds the American 100-mile record and the 12-hour world record. As you might have guessed, he's pretty driven to find his limitations in a variety of different environments and to help others find theirs as well. In this interview, we discuss everything from the psychology of competing in endurance races, such as his recent Western States 100, how he is able to sustain the impact that those distances can have on your body, through to the high-fat ketogenic approach to nutrition that he follows in order to fuel his racing efforts. Zach is such a humble, well-spoken guy with a lot of expertise in not only the world of ultra running, but in managing racing and nutrition for sustainable outcomes. I'm so honored to be interviewing someone so physically and mentally tough like Zach, so make sure you stick around to the end where he gives some really helpful advice on getting into your first ultra marathon. So please welcome Zach Bitter. Zach, how are you doing today? Hey Aaron, doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries. You know, we were talking a little bit off the podcast just before, and uh, I was saying that I'm going to be run running a uh, a, a marathon in this weekend coming. So, uh, for this podcast is is uh, you know just as much for me as it is for all of the guests listening today. So, I'm super excited to be interviewing you not only because uh, you do ultra marathons, which is so much more intense than a marathon, but you've also gone through all the progressions of doing it using a high-fat diet. Um, so, uh, you know, I like to start off these these podcasts with a, you know, I guess a bit of a personal story. And the personal story uh, that uh, you you said you might be willing to share has something to do with the Hogolina 100 and, uh, and particularly how warm that race got. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting race. Uh, I, I've done it two years in a row now in, in 2016 and 2017. And, you know, it's a desert here out near Phoenix, Arizona. So you can imagine how warm it can get. Thankfully, it's in October. So there are years where it's a little more manageable. Um, but two years ago when I did it, it had course record temps where it got up to 102 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, you're running through these like completely exposed kind of desert single track trails and you'll, as the day kind of progresses, you'll start to see people, uh, like, you know, trying to do whatever they can to cool off or they'll overheat. And, um, you know, I I remember when I was running, I'd run by and I, there was this one stretch during the heat of the day where I passed 
two or three people who were, um, I should explain the course is kind of like a loop course where you do, you reverse loop. So you're seeing everyone all day, regardless whether you're first middle or back of the pack. So like I'm, I'm going by these people that are like kind of just like hunkered down under these tiny bushes or like the side of a, by a cactus. It's like, what are these people doing? And, uh, so I asked, you know, I'm, I'm usually when someone looks like they're in a rough spot, I'll, I'll ask if they're okay. And usually they've got a pacer or something. So it's not like, you know, I'm going to have to rush them out of there or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, they're like, yeah, we're just, you know, just trying to find any bit of shade we can on the course and try to lower the core body temperature. So, you know, it's always fascinating to me. Like I learned firsthand in that race too, like some strategies in terms of heat management and how important it is when you have like a dry desert climate like that, uh, about, you know, getting into an aid station and getting wet and putting ice in every which spot you can think of, uh, which you can introduce some interesting chafing situations as well, but it, it certainly <laughs> helps lower the core body temp and kind of keep things moving on. But, you know, that's, I guess, one of the variables in ultra marathon running that I've had a bit more opportunity to experience the last couple of years. And it's been a fun one to kind of try to fine tune. Yeah. And so 102 Fahrenheit, I'm pretty sure is about 40 degrees Celsius is, uh, I don't know whether you uh, are good at converting those types of temperatures, but that is damn hot. That is <laughs> extremely hot. So <laughs> well done for running, first of all, in that type of heat. But, you know, running in such a dry um, desert sort of area as well. Does that does that really play havoc with your um, electrolytes and all of the you know you, just your hydration because you're trying to keep water down, but you're also not trying to have too much water at the same time. Is that something that you need to balance at all? Yeah, you know, I I'll definitely take in some electrolytes during a race. I think you know electrolytes and water in general have been kind of more of a polarizing topic. I think over the last couple of years as you know, we've seen people kind of go too far on one end or the other and, and kind of experience negative consequences from essentially oversaturating with some of that stuff. Um, but when, you know, when you're in a desert and it's a hundred plus degrees and you're drinking a ton of water and you're out there all day long, uh, you know, I think you're starting to kind of get to that point where even if you go in with really good stores of electrolytes, you know, you might benefit from bringing some in during the race itself. So, I'm definitely doing that, you know, staying on top of hydration and stuff. Uh, more often than not, though, I think it's you can be pretty in tune with yourself and just kind of go by your body's, you know, messages. So, like, I don't necessarily pound water for the sake of pounding water. You know, if I'm thirsty, I'll definitely drink it. And if I, I notice that I'm not drinking much but not getting thirsty, I'll maybe introduce some salty things or an electrolyte to try to, you know, balance things out enough so that I'm still like kind of staying thirsty, I guess, because, you know, that's something I've had, I've made mistakes in, in the past too, is like, if you kind of avoid the electrolytes, but drink the water, you kind of get to a point where you're not really that thirsty. And it could just mm. be that those electrolytes are getting kind of low and, um, it's creating this like less your body's perception to not really need the water, even though everything's kind of low. <laughs> Yeah, that's totally right. Um, you know, and you and you just come out totally dry, right? Um, so when okay, so for anyone who doesn't know you, um, you run uh, distances longer than marathons. Basically, that's that's my definition from an ultra runner. But how did you get started, and and how did you, um, you know, maybe you might be able to define an ultra runner better than I am, and uh, and and can you explain? 
how it felt to find your strength. So uh, as opposed to going out there and running really fast short distances, how how did finding your strength in that long distance, um, you know, really cement that you were going to do this for a long time? Yeah, you know, I think the most interesting thing about ultra marathons is that, you know, it's a small enough group of folks that it it's difficult to really kind of compartmentalize like you would like in track and field where you have like this person is a, you know, a hundred meter dash specialist. This person's a 1500 meter specialist. This person's a high jumping specialist. Whereas an ultra running, you know, if you want to kind of make a good go at it, certainly from like an athlete side of things, you have to, you can specialize, but uh, you're going to also probably find yourself in positions where you're doing events that, are drastically different, even though they're all ultra marathons. You know, the example I usually use is there's this race in uh, Utah called uh, the Speed Goat 50K. So it's 50 kilometers. So on paper, it looks like just a shade over a marathon, but um, it has something like 11,000 feet of climbing and descending, and it's all at like above 10,000 feet. So like some of the best runners in the world in, in ultra running and mountain running will come there and, you know, run like around five hours. So you can imagine oh these gosh. are guys who are fit enough individuals where if they put their energies into marathon training, you know, they'd all probably be sub 220 guys. Um, but yeah, so there's that. And then there's also events as far as, you know, six days where you see how far you can get in six days and you're doing it all on a 400 meter track. So they're all kind of ultra marathons, but their skill sets required for each of them are very, very different. So for me, I think uh, the first sign of kind of wanting to get into ultra marathon running as opposed to some of the more traditional distances was uh, in college, I, uh, I competed for a team of division three school here in the United States. And uh, when I kind of looked at the week of training, I kept coming back to the long run as being the kind of workout that I loved the most. So when I finished college, I didn't really have necessarily a huge goal race or anything to train for. But I knew I loved running, so I kind of just doubled down on, you know, the stuff I loved the most, which meant, you know, cutting out the 400-meter repeats for a while and starting just to do kind of <laughs> longer runs every day. And I built, like, this you know, pretty big, like, volume or aerobic base, I guess. And, um, you know, that's kind of when I started getting curious about doing an ultra marathon. And in 2010, at the end of the year, I you know, jumped into my first one, and uh, it was a 50-miler in uh, Wisconsin in the United States. And you know, that got me kind of hooked. I, I, I fell in love with the sport kind of after that. I wanted to kind of figure out more about what it was like and what other people were doing and where some of these other races were. And uh, by that same time, the next year, I was kind of all in. Wow. So, so before doing the 50 mile that you said you did in 2010, did you do any of the leading races before that? So did you transition from maybe a half marathon through to the marathon and then go, you know what, I'm just going to push it right through to 50 miles, which is like almost Oh, almost double a, a full marathon, right? <laughs> was there any of those progression runs that sort of really solidified that feeling for you or was it just straight into ultras? Yeah, it was, you know, I've never really, I guess, put together a half marathon program where I went through all the paces of what would be considered a real good buildup and spec- specifying towards that distance. I've, I've done a, I've, I've done a few marathons uh, before I'd done a, the 50 miler uh, with kind of more or less a, a low structured approach where I was just kind of doing a lot of running and then 
would you sign up for those marathons? And I, I didn't really ever do what I would consider a high caliber marathon training plan all, but maybe once. Um, so like that distance, I feel like I would love to kind of revisit maybe and see if I can, you know, how low I can maybe get that time. It's just kind of, I think it's one of the coolest distances actually. And I've, uh, you know, just found myself in a position where, there's so many different ultra marathons too. It's just, it comes down to like, when you look at the calendar, where do I put all these things and how do I train mm-hmm. properly for all of them? Um, but yeah, so I did do some of that. So I, there, it wasn't like completely foreign to me, like the idea of, you know, running you know, a marathon or 42 kilometers, but I didn't do a 50 kilometer or anything like that before I did the 50 miler. So it was a pretty big jump. I think the longest run I had done going into that race was about a 30 mile long run. So it was a, a 20 mile, I guess, unknown for that day. <laughs> That's a brutal amount of unknown, really. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're like, um, you know, when it comes to a race, it's very different to training because uh, there's, there's people watching and you can't just say, oh, well, I had a bad day today. And I guess you can, but those, you, you know, you really get, I guess you really get a little bit of extra juice on race day. So maybe, maybe that was what took you the extra 20 miles, but you know, when you're running distances for, um, you know, that amount of time and that amount of uh, actual mileage in your feet, you start to, um, you know, the human body starts to get a little bit fatigued. You know, you start having trouble sleeping. There's energy swings because all of the nutrition might be playing havoc with the amount of running, running that you're doing. But was there a distinct point where you transitioned from being a relatively high carb athlete to now what you are as a uh, high fat athlete and and what was what was some of the motivation behind the high fat approach and how it affected not only your sleep and your energy levels but you know just your running and training in general yeah so my first kind of uh I guess, dive into what a high fat approach was like, or even, you know, digging into you know, the the fact that it was out there uh, was in 2011. So it was about a year after that first 50 miler I'd done, I had gotten pretty excited about ultra marathons. So that fall slash winter, early winter, I guess I, I did, I did three 50 milers in about a nine week time frame, And cool. You know, at that point, I basically spent the last three, three and a half years training kind of high volume where I would average over about 100 miles a week over the course of a year. Um, and I kind of started noticing things that were a little off. You know, historically, I'd always been a really good sleeper where, you know, in high school and in college and things like that, I could, if I went to bed, I'd sleep eight, nine hours straight without waking up and then, you know, pop out of bed fresh the next day. Uh, but that kind of fall winter, I started noticing that like, if I went to bed, I'd and wanted to sleep for eight hours. I'd ha- kind of have to block out like a 10 hour time frame Cause I knew I was going to wake up two, three, four times during that and have to try to fall back asleep. Um, right. so that was kind of a red flag in my opinion. I was you know 25 years old, so I was, I should be at the peak of my health. There's no reason why, you know, that should be occurring unless there's something I'm doing that's, you know, kind of unsustainable. So uh, you know, I was also a full-time teacher at the time and, uh, I would notice like during the work day, I would have pretty big energy swings. I could feel you know pretty good. And then by mid afternoon, I could have probably taken a nap right on the desk there if I had been given the opportunity. <laughs> um, so yet again, another kind of life 
thing that was a little more or less like less than ideal. And, you know, I think a lot of times people see that stuff when they're in big training blocks or they're in a stressful point in their life, but they kind of just chalk it up as like, oh, that's just the reality of what I do is everyone else is doing this is dealing with the same thing. I just kind of have to push through. And then they never really feel optimized. They start to kind of normalize this like kind of low level, like hum of like discomfort or less than ideal physical health and performance. So my thought was kind of, uh, I should try to address this, but my question kind of was like, well, how should I do it? I I could essentially reduce my training and racing. um, And hopefully that would maybe clear it up or I could maybe try something nutritionally and see if that works first. And, uh, you know, I was really enjoying the training and racing at that point. I was essentially just getting started with the ultra running stuff. So that was the last thing I wanted to take away if I could help it. So I started with, with nutrition. And, and like you mentioned before that I had followed a high carb diet, like you traditionally see for an endurance athlete. And, um, it was a, what would be considered a very healthy high carb diet, you know, whole foods, like lots of fruits, vegetables, some whole grains and things like that. And it probably made up somewhere between 60 to 70% of my intake. And, um, it was around that same time. I actually kind of started listening to podcasts. It was, uh, kind of funny. I was looking at how much training I was actually doing and I was feeling a little guilty about how much time I was investing in this one activity. So I thought, uh, what can I do to kind of kill two birds with one stone? And I started listening to podcasts while I'd run as a way to kind of try to learn something as well as get fit for a race. Um, so I just like doubled down on health and nutrition podcasts and that's kind of where I kind of came across a whole high fat approach. And, um, then it just kind of spiraled. I went down that rabbit hole and was fortunate enough to meet guys like uh, Dr. Volick and Dr. Finney. And you kind of speak to people who've been experimenting and playing around with that type of approach for quite a while and uh, bounce ideas off them. And, you know, once I implemented it, it was, it sold itself pretty quick. And the reason for that, I would say is because I didn't necessarily notice this big performance boost or anything right out the gate, but I noticed after doing it for just a few days or about a week or so that I was starting to sleep through the night again um, I started to notice that my energy levels throughout the course of the day were very steady, very consistent. None of these like big peaks and valleys where I felt like I could nap all the time. Um, <laughs> as I got further into it, I noticed like I was getting rid of a lot of the swelling in my legs after big efforts a lot quicker. And in some cases they just never really swell- got swollen. Uh, so I was starting to kind of chip away at some of those more or less negative uh, health uh, red flags that had been popping up. And, um, really I haven't really looked back since I've just kind of what I call as evolved along the approach over the last seven years or so to kind of fine tune it to what I'm doing and then kind of make adjustments depending on what I'm doing and where I am in my training. Mm, Yeah. It's, um, you know, what you were saying before, and I think the key word out of all of that was sustainability and you want to be doing this for the rest of your life. And so, being able to recover quicker, being able to sleep better at nighttime, like those and, you know, not having that huge energy slump midway or, you know, in the afternoons is just, you know, such a, a, a performance boost in itself, I guess. So, um, you know, that when you're, when you're getting to the top of your game and you're breaking world records, you know, um, it, you, you'll take anything you can get really. And so the, I think, you know, from my perspective, the, the high fat diet, it lends itself so well to ultra running and just endurance activities in general. Um, and so did you have any, like when you first transitioned, did you have um, 
you know, you, you, with an ultra marathon, from my understanding, you, you have to take in a lot of fuel throughout the day. And with that comes a lot of GI distress and all that type of stuff. Uh, your, your method is, is more so to be able to reduce the amount of GI distress that you have and to be able to use more body fat. Is that, is that initially why you did the high fat diet or was there, you, you know, you were trying to fix all of the things outside of running and then found that there were some really good applications during your training as well? Yeah, you know, that's kind of where I guess I found out about it. Uh, the approach was, you know, from listening to people who are kind of using it from a, an exercise standpoint. And, you know, there were, if they weren't dealing with any type of health issue, that was definitely the kind of the go-to draw was becoming, you know, way more efficient with the fuel source. And so that was kind of something I guess I uh, discovered after a kind of trying to address things. Um, but I was very aware of it from the get-go as kind of hopefully a, a consequence of what I was doing to also help out with uh, performance. And, you know, like you said, it, it's, it's really interesting how that all works. And, you know, when I look at what I was doing fueling before when I was high carb versus what I do now, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I was, uh, when I was high carb, I was taking in, you know, anywhere from three to 400, sometimes more calories an hour, if I could get it down, um, during some of these 50 mile races. And, since then, I've been able to reduce that by more than half and kind of still have that same amount of pop when I need it and uh, kind of consistent energy levels. And it's just pretty liberating not to have to be, you know, checking your watch every 10, 15 minutes and making sure you're fueling when you can kind of reduce that by that much. You can be a little more, a little more flexible with how you kind of plan out a race from a logistics standpoint. Yeah, of course. And also, you know, carrying that much fuel must just be such a, a, a weight as well, because not only is, is fat more dense calorically, but it, it just doesn't weigh as much. Like, uh, I don't know, um, you might be able to give an indication, but what does four or 500 calories in terms of gels or bars uh, look like per hour? Is that is that pretty, you know, cumbersome to carry for the next hour, I guess? Yeah, you know, it's it's not too bad. They've gotten really good on that front, probably because people rely on that stuff so much now where like, mm. you know, you can bring along like four gels, which would be about 400 calories or so and pack that pretty easily. Um, but you, you kind of alluded to it before. It's like the more you're eating during an event, the more you're setting yourself up for potential digestive issues. And mm. um, people vary drastically on how well they put up with that stuff. Like i talk to people who they have more than a couple gels or one gel an hour and their stomach goes sour on them eventually. And, and there's other guys who kind of do what I used to do and they seemingly don't have too much stomach issues. Um, although it does seem to be a much bigger issue when you start stretching out towards like a hundred miles. Cause you know, when you've been pinging your system with these, uh, engineered fuel sources all day and in a pretty high quantity for, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 hours, eventually your digestive tract kind of says enough and starts kind of sending things back up. But um, yeah, so that's kind of always been that idea where the way I describe it is, I mean, you're going into a race with, uh, you know, your fat, your body fat, which even the leanest athletes have plenty of in, in comparison to like their glycogen stores. Um, and then you have your glycogen stores and then whatever you're able to eat during the race. So Whichever one of those you pick, the the fat store is your big tank. That's the one you will not deplete during the race itself. 
Um, the glycogen one is pretty easy to deplete, especially if it's got a, a race where there is any intensity in it. Um, or in ultra marathoning, usually those are races with, you know, a lot of climbing and descending because you just tend to spike your heart rate a little more going up some of the climbs. Uh, and you know, those are like, you know, th those are going to, that, that fuel tank is the one that could potentially get exhausted. So I think you want to be pinging the fat fuel tank as often as possible and as high, high rates as possible without, you know, losing performance, uh, in order to minimize the amount of glycogen you need and then eliminate the amount of, uh, you know, refined carbohydrate you need to try to replace during the event itself. And, and for me, that's been kind of a big, a big, uh, improvement, I guess, in, in being able to kind of plan a race and then execute it from a nutritional standpoint. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And um, I remember, I, I think I was listening to one of your podcasts or, or one of your video interviews, and you were saying, you know, um, a lot of people when they actually start a ketogenic diet, and they're, you know, an, an endurance athlete, they try and do it strict keto. And they think there's no line between, you know, being strict keto or being strict high carb mm -hmm. and and that line gets sort of a little bit blurry but what i what i think um you know what i like what you do is that you use the fat fuel during the race for the you know uh sustainable energy and then to to not, to make sure you're not losing that really top end when you're going like you know because the one of the recent races you ran had eighteen thousand feet of elevation which is like a five and a half thousand meters which is just insane like that's like three huge mountains put on top of each <laughs> other <laughs> um and so for anyone out there who thinks that you know they need some carbohydrates for just running a 5k i think it's more about um trying to make sure that your blood sugar levels don't drop so drastically throughout a race that takes you 14 15 16 17 hours um as opposed to you know uh, thinking that you need to uh, always have topped up glycogen before you uh, run any sort of race. And so it, it, was that line between being strict keto and high carb um, pretty hard for you, to, for you to play at first or did you sort of just listen to your own, your own exercise and your own feelings on how that, that sort of nutrition should play out for you? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. And, you know, looking at people and the people that I've helped too, it's definitely getting – I would say almost a little more difficult sometimes because there's just so much information out there. And then, you know, people a lot of times will come into nutrition and it'll become kind of a, a more or less a religion because they had some huge breakthrough with it. And I mean, I totally get that, especially from a health standpoint, if you've been living in a very unhealthy state and you find something that essentially makes your quality of life improved by, by a lot, you're going to want to share that and you're going to want to talk about it and you're going to want to preach about it. Um, where I had a little bit difference when I got into it, there wasn't a whole lot of buzz around it yet, not within the ultra marathon running community. So I kind of came in more curious as opposed to like, this is the right program. I know this is going to work and I'm going to make it work, which kind of put me in a position to just say, okay, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to assess how I feel. And then I'm going to respond to that. So one thing I kind of noticed early on is, you know, I did what I would call like, you know, kind of a hard reset or like uh, an initial phase uh, where you drop those carbs really, really low. And uh, that's more or less to encourage the body to kind of flip that metabolic switch to start preferring fat as a fuel source. And it tends to 
be a little quicker doing that if you cut out the carbs almost altogether because then your body's almost forced into this state of fat metabolization uh, out of necessity. And uh, what I noticed during that was, you know, when I'm doing like low intensity stuff or even low volume, low intensity stuff, like the need for carbohydrates is, is, was basically non-existent. I felt great. Um, you know, I had a little bit of kind of ebb and flow during the first three, four weeks, like you kind of expect with when you're asking your body to make a, a pretty drastic switch in the way it's metabolizing fuel, you know, so I'd have days where I felt a little more flat on runs, even if they were really slow and easy. Uh, but you know, after about three or four weeks of that, I felt very steady at any of those kind of like, uh, aerobic paces. Um, and it really wasn't until I started introducing some workouts or, you know, a very high amount of volume where I'd be hitting upwards to 20 hours of work a week in, in training. Um, and that's when I would start to notice, like, you kind of had to have a hard time kind of getting that last gear back, especially if I did like a speed workout and then um, had another run not too far after. So essentially as the recovery time, recovery window in time reduced, uh, I noticed I was, you know, missing a gear, so to speak. Um, so for me, that was just an assign that like, there's this range of metabolic flexibility and you can be very far to one end or the other. You can be very carb dependent. You can be very fat dependent. Um, but there's some middle ground. There's like, there's areas there where I think you're fat adapted enough to be able to benefit from those, from that side of things. Um, but also be metabolically flexible enough where you can still hit that glycogen store. You can still like kind of take advantage of that high octane fuel source or carbohydrate. Um, where I think traditional sports nutrition has gone wrong is they've just, they've went way too heavy on the carbohydrate side of things. I think you can still get all the benefits from the carbohydrates, but we can get those same benefits at a much lower rate than what's typically preached in, you know, exercise physiology. Uh, so for me over the last few years, that's been kind of trying to find like where those ranges are throughout my training process. And then, you know, other people that I've helped and there certainly does seem to be some individual, uh, things that, can change the way someone goes about it, but more or less it comes down to at least to some degree a periodized nutrition approach where, you know, when you're in those recovery stages of the year, the, you can drop those carbs super low. If you're in that high intensity side of things where you're at race weight, you're just looking to nail workouts. You know, that's where you can probably get away with a few more carbohydrates um, and not sacrifice fat adaptation enough to, um, you know, make it that not be a strength of yours. So, you know, the other thing I always find interesting within like the keto community and stuff too, is people are pretty like, um, they're, they're pretty, I don't want to say hung up, but they're, they're very curious about like, where are my blood ketone levels at or how high can I get my blood ketones? It's almost like this race to the top of how who can get the highest blood ketone reading. Right. And, um, <laughs> I'm not trying to like, uh, you know, dismiss that by any means, but for me, it's always been more about like where, where am I in the field in terms of how I'm feeling? So one kind of field test that I'll do with myself and with some of my, my coaching clients who are following a high fat approach is we'll do a field test or a couple field tests during their build up to a race where, you know, we see like, well, let's go out for your long run, which sometimes can be four to even five hours in length. And if you can do that long run with just water and electrolytes and feel like you have consistent levels at a, you know, a relatively low intensity, 
then you're fat adapted enough. We don't need to get you more fat adapted to be able to get through a race unless it's a weird situation where there's like no fuel for like a very long period of time. Um, in which case then it probably would be advantageous to get as fat adapted as you possibly can. But the reality is that these races, there's, um, there's aid stations all over the place and people are eating during them and stuff like that. So from a performance side of things, I think it does, uh, behoove most people to be at least metabolically flexible enough to be able to use a small amount of carbohydrates when it comes to performance. Um, but even that is individualized. One of the things that I always find, find kind of funny is, uh, I'll be talking to, you know, another coach or, you know, someone who's, pretty convinced that, you know, anything other than high carb is going to reduce your, your performance potential. It's like, they'll, they'll, they'll want to point to like, well, let's look at these Olympians and these gold medalists and we'll look at what they're eating and they're all eating a high carb diet. And, um, you know, and that's more or less somewhat true. Like uh, it's, it is very hard to, you're still going to find tons and tons of people eating a high carb diet who are winning these medals at Olympics and world championships and things like that. Um, but we're looking at a segment of the population that is likely way more robust than pretty much anyone else. And they're also at their peak age. So they haven't necessarily had a chance to break yet in my opinion. So what I would like to see actually is let's look at some of these people who kind of fell along the wayside on their way to what could have been the top, but for whatever reason didn't. And what about them? So like we have someone who's equal, has an equal talent or an equal amount of opportunity from a physical standpoint at the high school, early college age. Um, when they burn out, we don't remember them because they never make it to the Olympics. They never win the gold medal. Like what would happen if we took that segment of the population and just manipulated their diet could that maybe make it sustainable for them where they were able to kind of reach their maximum potential further on in life? Um, the other way I like to look at it too is uh, look at these people after their career. And the more I go down the rabbit hole of kind of a high fat approach that has a very heavy emphasis in meat, um, I'm seeing these guys essentially reverse age. Uh, and it's, it's pretty mind boggling. Like you see guys in their forties and fifties improving upon their own performances of past. Uh, and in some cases almost like kind of having a second career that they didn't think was there. And, you know, one of the best examples I like to share is this guy named, uh, Jeff Browning. Uh, Jeff is, he follows a very similar approach to I do. And he's, I want to say one, like, or he's, he's run like 3,300 mile races. Uh, he's 47. And when he was in his early forties, he, uh, he was about ready to almost retire actually. <laughs> Cause he was just having all these, these issues where like he had a candida outbreak, you know, he was just, you know, he finished a hundred miler and it was just like, Oh man, why am I doing this kind of a thing? Um, and then he kind of figured it out. He did a similar approach. He went strict keto for about a month and just kind of reset his metabolic engine and cleared up all the candida and stuff. And um, he lost like about eight pounds or something like that. So he got like noticeably leaner than he had been the season before. And since then, he's just been just tearing it up. He's actually, since that transition, he's uh, been at the Western States 100, which is the most competitive 100 miler in North America. And the last three years, he's placed third, fourth, and fifth there. 
And this year with his fifth place finish, he's 47 years old. So it's like he's getting to that point where most people would be like, oh, yeah, let's see if you can run a good master's time as opposed to win the thing or podium at the thing and stuff like that. And um, he shows no sign of slowing down. So it's like, you know, I see well. I see some of these examples of like, you know, very capable athletes, uh, you know, reversing their age or, or like, you know, or more or less uh, making their career, lengthening their career. Uh, because they're paying close attention to nutrition and not just kind of following what everyone else is doing. Uh, and if you look at what everyone else is doing, we have a pretty clear timeline of when you kind of tap out and that usually tends to be in your late thirties in most sports. So, you know, when I see guys breaking, you know, age group world records, like my co-host at human performance outliers podcast, Sean Baker, who's 50, I think he's about to turn 52. Um, you know, he's still setting PRs in the weight room and on rowing machines and things like that. And it's like, those are the people I'm more interested in. I'm not as interested in someone who can pound carbohydrates in their twenties and thirties and then, you know, fall out of the sports and end up, you know, gaining a bunch of weight or something like that. That's, uh, you know, that, that tells me that they, they, they kind of beat the horse, so to speak as long as they could. And then it eventually failed. So, you know, it's really a fascinating mm. thing when you kind of pull out and look at things from a much bigger picture, as opposed to like just this one event. Yeah. Those, those studies would actually be really interesting to do. Maybe we can convince Volek and Finney to, to <laughs> do, do something like that. But you know, oh, that's so amazing. Um, uh, you know, that the, the career highlights and, you know, it really is just a highlight reel of people who have been successful on a high carbohydrate diet that do event that do compete in these events because we haven't really figured out the best way and I think it's you know nutrition's not always a, a one fits all approach uh, it's different for everyone but what you were saying before about the uh, the Western States 100 um, let's talk about your race because you recently ran the Western States 100 and I was looking at the course map and I was looking at the elevation <clears throat> and oh. It's it, it, this was the race I was re- referring to before with the eighteen thousand feet of elevation, which is a re- over five thousand meters of climbing, which is crazy, by the way. Um, and you know, I'm sure you get a lot of these people saying, "Wow, you're crazy when you're doing an ultra marathon," but you're out there and you're with all of the you know the same like-minded community, and and you're all just you know putting in the hard yards and making this race the best one you can. So, can you sort of um, you know? tell us more about the race and i was having a look at your splits and you were coming like it almost just looked like you were getting faster as the race went on was that was that something you found while you were out there and and from what i remember as well it it was pretty hot yeah yeah well he might be giving me a little too much credit because on that course you you almost (laughs) should get a little faster because it gets easier terrain wise as you get further on but um you also put a bunch of miles on your legs which plays a big role as well but yeah, you know, it, yeah. Western stage was a real, an interesting kind of race for me to build up to because kind of like what I was saying before, where you have like these pretty big variances in the types of distances and trains that these ultra marathons occur on. Um, like even if you take a similar distance, like a hundred miles, you have a pretty big difference between say like the Western States 100. And there's this other one called the hard rock 100, which is you're going to hike almost half of it, even if you're like the best runner on the field. Um, and then you have ones like that. I've more or less, I guess, really fine tuned over the years, which are these flatter hundred milers or hundred miles on a track where there was essentially zero inches of elevation gain. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> so for me, it was really fun because uh, uh, I actually moved out to Phoenix, Arizona in January. So uh, historically, I'd have to drive a fair bit to get to any type of trail with climbing and descending and technicality and all that sort of stuff. So it was really hard to justify building up and peaking for a race that had a lot of that because I just knew I wasn't going to be able to do as good a job as I could as if I had that kind of right in my backyard. Um, but since Mm -hmm. moving to Phoenix, now I do have that in my backyard. So it was really interesting to do like a full training cycle in kind of this mountain trail type environment. And, uh, you know, my goal going into the race or thought was if I can, with any luck, I can get in the top 10, uh, with, you know, this one kind of cycle of training in the trails and races. And, uh, I fell a bit short of that with 11th place, but I definitely found some areas within kind of where, how I felt throughout the course on that, on that, on that course where like, I know like, okay, if I want to improve here, I just, this is a spot I have to work on more. Um, or this is a spot I really nailed in training. Uh, so the race itself was very telling. I think you learn a lot when you kind of step into an environment that you're not quite as used to being into. Uh, you can really assess kind of where your strengths and weaknesses lie. So that was a fun one for me. And, um, yeah, it got really hot. I think it was, I want to say it got up to 106 at this one section. Oh my God. And usually the, the, the section where they count 106 is usually not the hottest spot on the course. Um, so I'd have to look to see if it got hotter than that, like in the canyons, but it was, it was toasty. And, um, I guess one of the biggest surprises to me was historically at that event, when you have a race that hot, there's a lot more carnage. Like a lot of the top guys and gals will drop or like essentially death march it in where they walk the last 20 miles. And, you know, you can run a real steady race and just, you know, beat people who on paper should have beat you because of the, the heat variable. But I don't know if it was just people kind of picked up on it that it was going to be hot early enough that they adjusted their race plan or if people are just getting smarter or what, but there was very little carnage. So when I actually came into uh, the hundred kilometer mark, which is kind of the spot where a lot of times people say the race starts here because the next 38 miles to the finish are the most runnable sections of the trail. So if you come in there with good legs, you can just clean up on people who kind of overreached mm. in the high country and in the Canyon sections and stuff. And, uh, so I came in there 15th place thinking like, all right, I'm going to pass a huge group of people here. And I, I picked up four people, but I would have thought I would have gotten more given the weather that day. So I guess mad props to all the other competitors at the race this year who kept it <laughs> together, even with, you know, putting down some pretty good surges in some of the tough areas of that course. So, you know, I'm, I hope to get back into it in the next year or so and, uh, take another swing at it with a little more practice in those environments and working on some of the things that I've feel like I could improve on and see if I can kind of move up a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, and I did see, yeah, between, I think it was like the second last checkpoint and the, the last checkpoint you came in at 16th and then you moved up to 11th <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, to do that in such a late stage of a race is just, um, pretty inspiring, you know, because it, not only have you got so many Ks and so many miles in your legs, but you're also like pushing hard and you know there's i think on a distance and a time like that there must be so much psychology that goes on and uh, you know you're playing a mental game not only a physical game and you're not only out there in 106 fahrenheit which for anyone who lives in australia is over 40 um so crazy crazy hot um you know that all of those tactics play uh 
can play for or against you and it's and it's really like a bit of a chess game when you're out there for for such a long time how does the the psychology of running a race like 100 miles um uh you know ha- how do you actually push in that last little bit because uh you know do you look back on maybe some of the training that you'd done previously or how much effort it took you to actually get there to really dig deep or, you know, does some of the community inspire you? I guess maybe is it, you know, a bit of both or is there something else that I'm totally missing out? Yeah, you know, I think it's a it's a kind of a combination of all those things you mentioned and then it's also kind of being honest with yourself. Uh, the way I describe 100 miles is there's really no such thing as a perfect mental race because – you're just out there for so long. Um, there's really no way around having a point where you have a bit of self doubt or a bit of like, am I going to be able to sustain this? Or did that last move I make cost me more on the back end and that type of thing. So mm-hmm. when it, when you have a situation like that, I think it becomes, you start defining things like, okay, I know there's going to be some patches during this race that feel a lot worse than other areas. When I get into those, I need to recognize that I will get through them. And the sooner I can get through them, the sooner I can kind of get back on track or, you know, move up a little further. And so the more you minimize those kind of negative areas, uh, the better your race is probably going to be. So, you know, the guys that I see consistently doing well are the ones who can really kind of, you know, take it, take the race. And when something happens that they didn't expect, move on from it and kind of, just like, uh, you know, go from there as opposed to dwelling on like, oh, if I would have done that right, I could be, you know, two minutes further up or something like that. Um, so that plays mm-hmm. a big role, I think, especially at a hundred miles. And then, like you said, yeah, like, you know, using, trying to convince yourself like to how important it is. So as soon as you start thinking that you've lost your goals or this isn't as important as it, as it should be, that's when you have a hard time kind of pushing, so a lot of guys and gals will use strategies like that where for a lot of these races, especially like Western States, there's so much time and energy spent getting ready for it. You know, so many people coming out to help, um, you know, just, just for me alone at Western States, I had uh, six people helping me out. So it's like these people are spending all their time and energy to be out there all day for you to move from this spot to that spot. And really for them, it's like, mm-hmm. it's just goodwill. So, you know, you think about that, like, you know, trying to, make it give them something to be like excited about too, or to, uh, you know, feel like they're part of something good as opposed to something where that fell off the rails. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, you play little mind games too. It's, it gets very difficult in a hundred miles if you start trying to wrap your mind around the entirety of the distance. So a lot of times these trail ones are set up nicely where there's aid stations frequently enough, where if you can get yourself into a mind spot where, you run within control of what you're capable of, but you're not really thinking about anything but the next aid station and you just kind of pick them off one by one. And then, you know, by the end of the day, you're down to the last one. And then it's like, you kind of smell the barn at that point. (laughs) And then you can just release all the high octane fuel that you've been keeping (laughs) (laughs) and just go toast. (laughs) That's crazy. Um, You know? Yeah. And and I mean, uh, I didn't realize that there were six people out there helping. That's um, you know, that's an incredible team. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, everyone in the race has also got uh, six more people on there. And, and, and I think I was reading on the website, they have like uh, over or just under 2,000 volunteers who help with the race as well. Is that right? Yeah, that the, the local community and the ultra running community in general 
just has really gotten behind that event where it's kind of as close to a big city marathon as you're going to see in hundred mile races in the United States. You know, if you go to watch Western States, you'll have a kind of skewed perception of what these things are typically like. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of like very like, you go through an aid station and there's a handful of volunteers there and maybe one spectator. Whereas Western States, there's a number of aid stations where you go through and there's just like people lined up, um, volunteers everywhere. And, you know, Western States is about as good as it gets for that. You know, they're, they've, I think they have something like 28 stations or 18 aid stations or something like that. And each one of them has, you know, a lead captain who really takes it seriously. So they put together a team of volunteers that are, um, you know, just like your crew out there to like, you know, it's amazing. Like if you talk to people who uh, are near the end of the pack and they're coming through some of these aid stations and they'll tell you like these volunteers are, are still excited and still like, you know, running out to them to help them. And it's like, they've been out there all day doing that and they're still as excited about you know, the last person coming through is they were the first. Uh, so yeah, that, that race really has a good community and a real good culture around it from that standpoint. Uh, people really enjoy being part of it. Yeah. And I mean, it, uh, it would definitely make it easier just trying to make it to the next, to the next checkpoint, you know, because not only that community's there, but you're also getting a little bit of a refresher from just, you know, being in your own mind for so mm-hmm. long. Um, yeah. And that's definitely something you try to use at a race like that when you have that type of, uh, setup where there's going to be people cheering you you know you want to be careful not to kind of overreach and you know hit the adrenaline a little too hard but you're having a bit of a low patch and then you go through a big aid station and people are just like cheering for you and you know they're like let's put some water on your back to cool you off and you know it can be pretty uplifting and then you can have a nice stretch where you're feeling a lot more you know positive about about how things are going and that usually translates into a little bit of faster pace too so um it's a, it's a knowing where the good aid stations are can be helpful in terms of timing that stuff too. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and, you know, so, so you hold, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you hold the 12 hour world record for the amount of distance, uh, that has been covered, you know, by, uh, in a running distance. And so how did it, it first of all, <laughs> let me know if that is incorrect, but, um, uh, how did it feel compared to something like the Western States, on uh, the amount of not only the amount of effort that you're putting in, but you know, was was that race in particular hard? Are there are there races that are just particularly hard? And 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 what does something like that come down to when when you when you leave the race and you go, man, I wish I did uh, a little bit better, or um, you know, what? H- how have you learned from some of the the failures in some races to then be able to project you onto you know doing world records and and, you know, going out there and just training for 20 hours a week. Yeah. You know, the, the 12 hour world record is that one's an interesting one to me because that's, uh, on the, the, the one I've done that on was on a 400 meter track. So on, in one side of things, logistically, it's super easy because you bring one person out there and they have a table and some shade and you have everything you might possibly want on that table. And if you go buy it and you decide you want something, you tell them in the next lap, you have it. So like, that's really, really nice. Um, the hard part is kind of twofold. The monotony of going around the same loop over and over and over again, uh, it can be pretty tedious. And then, um, the kind of one dimensional type of, uh, uh, 
mobility, I guess, that you're going to get running on something pancake flat all day versus something that undulates a lot. You know, you can really tax a very specific group of muscles in a very specific type of way when you're just taking the exact same step over and over. Whereas at Western States, you know, you might be running up a hill, then you might be running down and you might be running on something flat, you might be running on something angled. And so you're getting all these different kinds of muscle flexions. Uh, so I think like both the physical and mental fatigue is, is different enough where you kind of have to approach it a little differently. You know, a race like desert solstice where I got the 12 hour world record, I was doing everything I could to picture myself in a different environment. Um, and at Western States, I'm doing everything I can to kind of be within the environment because it's such a cool, beautiful area. You're like, you like kind of look to the side and you see this really great view of the high Sierras and you're just like, all right, I'm going to kind of appreciate that for a few minutes and that's going to get me to the next spot. <laughs> you don't really have that on a track where you look up and you see a billboard that you've seen 300 times already and <laughs> it was already boring. So, uh, um, it's just a little different. Uh, and then like, I think like, for me personally, the track and flat stuff is a little stressful in a different way because everything is so exact. Like, you know, oh, I slowed down half a second that lap. Am I falling apart? Whereas out on a trail like Western States, you go up a canyon and like you don't necessarily know if you slowed down much or not because it's just the train changes. So it, it, I don't think you I think it's a little bit of naivety. You just don't know and you can't beat yourself up for something that's kind of minuscule. Whereas on a track, you can see everything that's minuscule and then you can kind of get into your head with it. So uh, trying to kind of keep it on the rails on the track can be just a little bit of a different mental side of things. And you just tend to crunch a lot more numbers then, too. So you're thinking, well, if I stop to use the bathroom, what's that going to cost me? And <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's really kind of goofy like that. And, you know, I've, I've done one where I actually set the hundred mile American record where I stopped, I stopped twice total for maybe 60 to 90 seconds tops during the entirety of the, of the run. And that one, I averaged right about seven minute mile pace. Uh, so it was like, there was really no point in that race where I felt like, all right, I can take it easy this mile. Or, you know, it's, you're just kind of always just trying to hit that exact same effort. And, um, you know, it, it's just a cool sport in that regard where, you know, you can go and do that and then you can go out into the mountains and run a race there. And, you know, the amount of time you spent in the specific environment is probably a huge variable in terms of predicting how successful you're going to be on that specific course. Yeah. And <clears throat> so for anyone uh, I remember hearing the seven minute mile in the Joe Rogan podcast that you did recently. And I tried to calculate that back into kilometers cause I'm not very good with miles, but that's like four minutes, 20 minutes per kilometer. And, and so doing that for a hundred miles, um, is just absolutely insane. I can barely hold that for five, you know, and, and I'm sure you must get this a lot where people are like, you're crazy, but <laughs> that's actually crazy. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, so, you know, so, so well done on that, but yeah, no, I totally agree when you, when you break it down into something that's very, um, calculated, like running a, a track or something, you know, you, you, you end up just calculating how much time you've got left. And, and I, I remember, uh, watching one of your videos and you were saying how you know because of your training you can get out there and and punch out the first 70 miles without thinking too much about it but then as soon as you drop a couple of seconds or you know something uh, while you're doing that lap that's when you actually have to start really you know it, it's no longer in cruise control you you actually have to start going whoa okay 
um, you know, can you sort of explain that process and and how uh, what you do in that scenario, maybe to try and get back into cruise control, or as you said, you know, be somewhere completely different than just that track? Yeah, you know, that's where those get interesting. And you know, the way I describe almost any hundred milers, the halfway point is not fifty miles, uh, or even half of what your your final time is. You know, halfway is somewhere between two thirds or three fourths into the race because in your mind's eye that last quarter or third of that 100 miles is going to feel just as long, if not longer, than the first two-thirds to three-quarters. So when you have a situation like that, I think, uh, you, you like like you mentioned uh, at Desert Souls, I say you can get to mile 70 on pace for what you're going for, I think, pretty easily. And then it gets a little more harder because your perceived effort starts to get skewed. Like you feel like you're running just as hard, if not harder, but your splits are getting slower. And the reason why I think that makes it difficult is because then you have to really kind of hyper-focus on kind of how fast you're going or how much you're slowing down. Because uh, if you just kind of let your mind wander off, you're just going to kind of naturally slow down. And if you're trying to hit a specific split, you you don't want to let that happen for too long. Um, so that's where it gets difficult, where a lot of those strategies that I would be using in the first 70 miles, where I can essentially hit my pace without thinking too much about it, I can kind of no longer do that. And that kind of puts you in a position where you're looking at laps more regularly. You're kind of counting down, I guess, maybe a little too early at times. Uh, so then the time just kind of seems to slow down or grind to a halt a little bit. And, uh, you know, really like all you can do is look for different things to try to motivate you to speed up or try to compartmentalize it to a smaller group. Like say, instead of trying to go from mile 70 to mile hundred, I'm going to just see if I can get to mile 72 at the right pace. And then once I get to that, I'm going to do this and kind of give yourself something to fixate on. That's not the very end of the race. And just kind of keep doing that as you get further on. Um, and then hopefully have enough mental and physical energy to get, <laughs> to get done what you're looking to get done. But it, it's very difficult. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, yeah. it doesn't always happen, happen right. And, uh, you know, even one of my best performances where I ran, that, that one we were just talking about where I did hundred miles in 11 hours and 40 minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. I was, one of my goals that day was to try to break the hundred mile world record, which I was about 12 minutes short of. Um, but I was on pace for it most of the day. So like, you know, it was, it was one of those things where I didn't slow down a ton the last 20 miles, but you don't have to slow down too much when you're trying to kind of, you know, reach that kind of pinnacle of like a world record or something like that. So it gets difficult mentally then too, when you kind of start to see that slip away and you almost have to say, all right, I, I may not get that goal, but I could still have a very solid day and, you know, get a PR or, uh, you know, something like that. If I just manage to not let it completely fall apart. Yeah. That's, uh, that's so good to hear, you know, because there are so many people out there who have these, um, you know, really adventurous goals and when they don't hit them, it becomes like this hard slog yeah. <laughs> and the end of the race just becomes, you know, an entire monotonous drudge, but you know, you're also a coach as well. And so, you know, these types of tactics very well. Um, what are some of the common mistakes that, that people are making before they come to you and, 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 and what are the things that you help them, uh, you know, in their progress, whether it's an ultra marathon or, or any sort of distance really, um, is there, is there something that people might be doing wrong and they just don't know about it? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times, like when I get a client coming in, they're, 
usually neglecting either one of the systems of training uh, or they're not specifying things towards the course they're training for. Um, and, and then there's a lot of, I think, going too easy on hard days and too hard on easy days is a pretty common issue that I think is just more or less plagues the, the running community as much as the ultra running community. But uh, yeah, so like a lot of times we'll look at kind of like, you know, what they're going for and, and uh, try to fine tune things to make them successful at that event. And you know, a lot of times that comes down to like, you know, addressing a system that they maybe haven't touched ever or in a long time. So, you know, some people think of ultra marathons, I think long, slow, long, slow, I just got to get out and do that all day every day. And in the reality, I think there's definitely still some benefit to kind of, I guess, more or less stretching out your aerobic capacity by still doing some of those like VO2 max type workouts um, in training. The difference I see is those paces or intensities are quite a bit different than the race pace itself. So it comes down to kind of determining where's the best position for that in the training block, as opposed to just like if I'm training for a 5k, I'm going to put some of those faster intervals, like right near the race, because that's my race pace. Um, so sometimes it just becomes getting creative about, you know, maybe putting a little earlier in the training system and then getting more specific with race day pace type workouts and training stimuluses later on in the program. Uh, so that's one thing I usually manipulate a lot with people's, uh, training programs and stuff. And then from a nutrition side, you know, a lot of times it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of times people will come to me, uh, because they kind of know I'm an endurance athlete that does high fat. Uh, and you know, they're coming from like a ketogenic background or something. And, uh, I, I would, I probably do more hourly consults with those folks unless they're trying to train for a race as well. Um, but a lot of times it can be like with an athlete, they come in and they're the biggest mistake I guess I see is they have this nutrition template that does not change throughout the course of the year. It's like, this is my macronutrient ratio, 365 days a year. Um, and, but their lifestyle changes drastically. You know, they might be like for me, for example, the last three days metabolically, I've probably done very little above resting metabolic rate because I'm recovering from Western States. But um, a couple of weeks ago, if you looked at my training, I might be on some days demanding two to three times my resting meta meta metabolic rate. So for me just to plug in the exact same nutrition plan on all those days seems kind of counterintuitive. So a lot of times it's kind of cleaning up and balancing things out uh, in that in that way too. And, you know, sometimes I've had folks that are like, I'm a triathlete. I work out 15, 20 hours a week and, you know, I'm eating 40 grams of carbohydrates a day. And I feel like I can't quite surge up the hills any longer. And they come to me thinking I'm going to tell them they got to reduce their carbohydrates even further. <laughs> and it's like, no, I think you're probably at a point where you're so fat adapted that you've kind of moved that needle so far away from metabolic flexibility that we want to start keeping you fat adapted, keeping you healthy, but also kind of using some strategic kind of carb carbohydrate spots to kind of really sharpen the spear and then uh, you can always go back to a real strict keto protocol and recovery and stuff like that. So um, those are kind of some of the things that, that come up quite often when I'm working with someone for the first time. Yeah, I, I always remember a quote from Bradley Wiggins, um, who was the Tour de France 2012 winner, I think. And he was saying uh, something really interesting about nutrition and not necessarily that he follows something that's high fat, but 
he was saying that, you know, think about it, your car pulling up to the petrol station. How far are you going? How much fuel do you need to actually put into your car? And don't put more and don't like, and you're going to burn out if you put less. Mm-hmm. And so for, for those people who are just, you know, hitting those, those ratios or those, um, those calories every single day, and they're wondering one, why they can't lose weight. And two, why their performance is, is um, you know, being stunted and, and generally your body's just in so much stress that, uh, you know, maybe it is in increasing those carbs or, or, uh, or you know, just becoming a little bit more effective in, in some avenue, whether it's, as you were saying before, increasing that VO2 max capacity or, or, um, or really building that endurance base. Uh, it, yeah, it's so interesting to hear that, you know, because um, it, it's something that I've been experimenting with a lot over the past uh, 12 weeks as I prepare for a marathon. And, um, and yeah, I've really broken a lot of my own rules really because they're, they're not rules. They're just, you know, and, and it's different for everyone. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's so, it's so refreshing to hear uh, you say that because, um, yeah, I mean, initially I thought you'd just go out and run these long runs and you'll be fine for a marathon. When in actual fact you're actually, um, you know, you're not quite at that math pace the entire way you sort of want to be getting faster over your training and if you're not doing something that's getting you faster then uh you know you may as well just go out and run a marathon every single day and try and prepare prepare that mm-hmm. way uh, which I, I don't know if that <laughs> probably not effective uh-huh. um but so so you know you were on the joe rogan podcast uh which is uh where a lot of people may have found you um and and you're such a well-spoken guy uh, and you know you have you have all of these you've been doing interviews for a, for a very long time and uh and it's such a an honor to be interviewing you first of all but you have your own podcast um the human performance outliers or hpo uh with sean baker as you were mentioning before and we sort of alluded to this podcast throughout uh this interview a little bit but do you sort of feel at home when you go in there and you and you um you're learning from all of these you know uh, great people who you're interviewing is that is that perspective um changed anything about how you are going about your own training or your own nutrition at all yeah you know that's been such a fun uh i guess hobby to add uh the last few months with with dr baker on human performance outliers podcast because we've certainly had some pretty cool guests who uh, are pretty informative and have kind of really done some deep dives into some of the conventional um, wisdom or lack thereof within nutrition. And, um, you know, some of the stuff that's been the most eye opening for me is just like how far off we've been with like cholesterol and how we've kind of gone through like these ebbs and flows of kind of demonizing or glorifying protein um, and kind of just trying to fine tune, like, where are these like kind of really good numbers of things where, like where they should be in order to maximize performance and health. And, um, you know, one of the most interesting things that has kind of been on the back of my mind since kind of starting that podcast has been, you know, my co-host Sean Baker is what they would call a carnivore. So he eats, uh, only meat and almost all the time it's ribeyes. So he's eating like, I mean, he's, he's kind of the opposite of that spectrum of me where he's almost twice my weight and does all these power, power sports. Um, and he'll eat, you know, four or five pounds of ribeye a day. And, uh, we were talking about that. I believe it was with our interview with, um, Dr. Ben Bickman. And, uh, we were, we were kind of mm-hmm. talking about 
kind of my approach to nutrition where when I get into that peak training phase, I will let my carbs come up a little bit to kind of speed up the glycogen restoration uh, from just workouts that are very close. And one thing that was kind of interesting was like a lot of times people on a ketogenic diet will reduce their protein quite a bit as well because they're told that that could kick them out of ketosis. So they'll be aiming for like kind of some of these like maybe 10 to 15% protein ranges. Whereas when you take something like a carnivore diet or an all meat diet, if even if you're taking pretty fatty cuts like ribeyes, you're getting somewhere around 70% fat, 30% protein. So you're getting up to those higher values of protein. Um, so like, I guess something I'm kind of curious is like, if I would kind of follow a protocol similar to Dr. Baker's, if I, gluconeogenesis would take the role of some of those carb sneaks I've done since my protein intake would likely go up uh, a fair bit when I'm kind of just focusing on those type of foods. So you know, that's something I might play around with in the next few weeks as I kind of build back into training and recover uh, and then kind of see where it goes from there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just a lot of interesting topics and a lot of interesting people that we've been able to have on. And it's it's really cool to have the doctors on. And it's also really cool to have people on who essentially took control of their own health where like they were in a miserable place. And I mean, I was, I, I feel a little guilty sometimes when I talk about how I came into it. Cause it was essentially just, you know, like very minor things that, that weren't necessarily affecting my quality of life all that much. And then you have a guest on who could, you know, hardly get out of bed or something like that because they had some mm. type of nutritional issue. And then they're able to kind of fix it by, kind of going through the the paces of exploring what's out there other than the conventional nutritional stuff that, you know, you find in any like kind of like dietitians protocol and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I've learned a lot and, uh, you know, as our listener base grows, uh, you know, hopefully we're helping some other people out too. Yeah, of course, you know, um, and I, I actually struggle with this one a lot too, because I, I moved to the ketogenic diet, not with any sort of weight issues, but more performance related. Um, and so do you, do you ever have people not necessarily, um, you know, discredit you, but, but I've seen people out there where they go, oh, that person didn't lose a whole bunch of weight. So why should I follow them? And, you know, you've, you've become very strategic with all of your running, but I'm, I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of um, specific weight loss inside training. So you, as you were saying before, you know, you're trying to get down the race weight and then after that you can you, you do what you need to. But, you know, those extra 100, 200, 300 grams or ounces or whatever it is matter so much during a race. Um, and, uh, now, I'm not asking what would you say to those people, but, I mean, ha- how do you sort of deal with that? as a perspective from someone who is um, trying to be more informed about a ketogenic diet, should they be focusing on weight loss? Um, I think the, so here's where I think there's some problems. I think when people come into any nutritional approach with the mindset of weight loss, they're kind of setting themselves up for failure to some degree uh, because you're asking your body to make a pretty big metabolic switch or nutritional shift if you're like changing things pretty drastically. So to couple that new onset of stress with, you know, an energy deficit stress as well, you might kind of be like pinging that stress system a little bit and that can stall your progress as well. So usually what I like to see when someone first comes is to kind of step away from anything like I'm going to try to lose X amount of pounds or I'm going to try to, you know, get 
stronger or something like that. He's like, let's spend the first four weeks just for focus on kind of getting the right foods at the right quantity in. And if you lose weight in the process, cool. If you don't, no big deal. We can always focus on that once we get this new nutrition plan to a point where it's no longer kind of a stress response to your body where your body starts working with it. Um, and then you can kind of maybe find yourself in a position where you can kind of more or less easily lose weight. And, and that's what I've always liked about the high fat approach is from for the folks that I've worked with, it seems like once they get fat adapted enough, if they want to lose weight, it's pretty easy because they just, they reduce a little bit of the fat they're eating and then their body just metabolizes body fat and replace in, in, in replacement of it. It's not like you're trying to remove a carbohydrate fuel source and turn to a fat burning source that can create like these situations where people are like, I'm trying to lose weight, but I'm hungry all day long. And it's just a miserable experience. So, um, I think for a lot of people, and I'm sure there's plenty of examples of people who've, you know, are like, Oh, I lose weight, no problem on a high carb diet. I don't get hunger pangs and all that. But, you know, there's certainly people who that isn't sustainable for either because they fall off the wagon. Cause I mean, who wants to be hungry all day long? Um, so that's where I kind of see, see the value in it is like, it's very individual, like you were saying before, where, uh, it doesn't matter to me, like if someone's 20 pounds overweight and then they lose that 20 pounds, like ultimately they want to be do something that's sustainable for them that they can kind of keep going. I don't want to see someone lose 20 pounds, you know, for the sake of doing it. And then a year later, they're, you know, 25 pounds heavier than they were (laughs) before. So like, you know, that's where I always, you know, and try to be cognizant of, cause you know, sometimes you'll hear that like, you know, in the background we're like, Oh, the ketogenic diet doesn't help you lose weight. There's no evidence that shows that you're going to burn more calories. And I mean, that's fine, but we're not looking necessarily at like calories in calories out, or can you eat more on this diet than a different diet? I'm looking at, can you eat this diet intuitively and get to a healthy weight and a healthy, you know, lifestyle. So if, if you can, then, then that's awesome. And you found something that works really great for you because ultimately what I, what I wanted to get to and where I kind of am now for the most part, as well as some of the clients I'd worked with for quite a while is, you know, they don't wake up in the day with a calculator trying to figure out, okay, I've got X amount of calories I can eat today. I better, you know, have this now, this there, you know, they eat when they're hungry and then they stop when they're full. And then they repeat that process when their body tells them to, and that's a very liberating spot to be at. Yeah, and that uh, intuitive style of eating is is uh, something that I really believe in too. So it's so powerful for you to say something like that because, um, yeah, it just it resonates so much. So so uh, you know, from all of your experience with using the ketogenic diet or even just a a high fat diet, where you're being able to maintain how much food your body needs right and the sustainability of that is is just so powerful but um i I like to end these podcasts with a a few short questions and these are just you know uh rapid fire ones but i guess some of them may also uh take a little bit of time to respond to because they may not be just you know rapid response um but uh what what is your favorite uh, keto food. What is something that you just, you know, can't live without day by day? Man, I've been, uh, I increased my red meat consumption quite a bit this last training block just to kind of like experiment with it. And I've, I, I can't go without steak anymore. I have steak pretty much every day now. 
<laughs> the fattier cut, the better. What, what sort of steak? Uh, you know, ribeye tends to be one of the fattier cuts. You can get in New York Strip, but a lot yeah. of times, what I'll do is I'll go to the grocery store and kind of just kind of see where the prices are at. Like you can, it can get expensive if you're just buying really expensive steak every time. So if they got something on sale, like every once in a while, I'll find like a, a chuck roast or something for two ninety nine a pound, and I'll just grab a few of those too. But mm. um, yeah, steak. <laughs> steak uh, and uh do you have a favorite way of cooking it uh i usually grill it um a lot of times i'll kind of slow cook it at first just to get it kind of up a little bit in temperature and then uh burn it real hot and kind of sear the outside it's kind of more or less a reverse sear type of setup mm, damn sounds <laughs> sounds awesome um what's your favorite style of training run now this might be a long run it could be like a fartlek or or an interval run what, what is there something that is is you go out every single day and you're like i can't wait to do this training run yeah i like i like if it's any type of like speed session i really love progression runs where you kind of start out with a nice easy warm-up and then you kind of start lowering the pace and like you know every mile or kilometer or x amount of minutes you just speed up a little bit little bit little bit i just really like the way that you kind of feel as you progress through that and then afterwards so if i had to pick one that would probably be it um I guess I got into the sport because of the long run. So I would be, uh, uh, it'd be a shame if I didn't say that that was one of my more enjoyable ones as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, you know, you can do progression runs with your long run too, I guess. You can, yeah. <laughs> um, so what is your least favorite food? Is is there something that you're just not a big fan of that everyone else seems to love? You know, I think avocados can be a little bit of a touchy subject for some people, but is there is there anything out there that you, you just don't, eat and you're not a big fan of uh let's see within like the keto food groups um oh i guess anything, anything. really uh yeah i don't know i mean i'm not a huge fan of avocados but some of that is just because if i eat too much of it i kind of get a stomach ache so i got to be a little right. careful with it um you know i don't know that i really have anything that really kind of rubs me the wrong way i think i kind of enjoy it all i i do find though now that i've been kind of doing the high fat stuff for longer i just i i loathe the times when i have to bring when i bring some of the carbs back because you kind of get to a point where like i just want something that's like really savory and salty and i guess i mean who knows maybe that's just gut floral changing or something that my body's always wanting that now but um you know stuff like i guess like a potato which i used to love are now like eh, i guess if i'm trying to nail a workout maybe i'll eat it but uh um yeah nothing that's really that appalling oh interesting okay yeah because so for most people it's like i just really can't I, i just crave carbs all the time but for you it's the opposite so that's that's really interesting um and again like what what is your least favorite training run is there a particular type of training run that you get out there and you just loathe as well Yeah, pretty much anything that's like just past like a quarter mile or 400 meters, but less than about a mile or I guess 1600 meters. Um, it just seems to be that point where you're going fast enough where it kind of hurts the whole time, but it's long enough where it's not over right away. <laughs> so like yeah. those three minute like VO2 max kind of workouts are the ones that I probably look the least forward to. Although I will say this, those are the ones that usually feel the best when you're done so sometimes it's like mm-hmm. let's do this so i can kind of get a runner's high afterwards <laughs> <laughs> Ch- chasing that uh you know that those hormones yeah. <laughs> just being kicked in 
Um, so, so who are you currently inspired by? Because, you know, a lot of people are inspired by you, but who are you currently inspired by? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I've been inspired by a lot of different folks throughout, uh, ultra running, I guess, you know, one, I I guess there's a kind of a a small group maybe, uh, in the U S like kind of flat ultras has been a little slower to grow than the trails have, which is interesting because, if you look into the, like the eighties and stuff, it was the roads and the flat stuff that was the most popular. Uh, so we've had a little bit of a insurgence in the last couple of years of people targeting like fast hundred Ks, flatter hundred mile stuff. And I think that's super cool. So like, you know, there's, there's a guy named Max King who is, I think inspires a lot of different ultra runners because he seems to be able to kind of do almost anything. <laughs> he can do a, a flat, fast 50 K he can do uh you know, a hillier 50 mile and stuff like that. And he doesn't seem to have to, uh, spend maybe quite as much time transitioning from one to the other. He can kind of do it pretty seamlessly. Uh, there's some newer guys to the sport who I think are pretty inspiring. Uh, Jeff Burns and, uh, Patrick Reagan. They've, uh, uh, last year and this year both went to comrades and on separate years, finished 12th there. And if, if your audience isn't familiar with the comrades marathon, it's by far the most competitive ultra marathon on the planet. Um, it's, it's just like littered with guys who've run like sub 220 marathons and sometimes down near 210 and they train for it over there. Like it's the super bowl. <laughs> and like so there's guys who are super fast. who are basically spending eight months out of the year peaking for comrades so for someone from the United States to go over there and try to compete is very, very difficult. Um, and Pat and Jeff have both been 12th the last couple of years out of, I think it's about 20,000 runners is how many people show up to that one. Whoa. So those guys have been really great for kind of like the road mar- ultra marathon scene. So it's been fun to watch those guys kind of move into the sport as well. That's oh, 20,000 people in a race. Just logistically, that's insane. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Well, have you ever run that race before? I did actually, I ran it, uh, the year or two years ago, I went out there. So it was, uh, it's cool race. I want to get out there and, and give it a better go. It's a, uh, it's a fun, it's, I think it'd be a fun one to really hit peak, peak fitness for. Yeah. And, and to, to have eight months of, you know, trying to strive for that peak is just, uh, is a long way, you know, so that, yeah, I, I would, I'm following along. <laughs> so <laughs> who, who is your number one supporter? Like who's the person that stands behind you? every race who's been there for, you know, like what is, is there someone that is stands behind you all the time that, that just has you back or, you know, is there for, with all of your aid stations? Is, is, is there someone that comes to mind? Uh, a couple people actually, um, if I would be, I, I'd probably get in trouble if I didn't say my fiance, Nicole Caladrafos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, she definitely is. Uh, she's also an ultra runner and quite, quite good at in her own right. She's been sixth place at Western States on two occasions. Oh, wow. And she's, yeah, she's run one of the fastest trail hundred mile times ever. Um, it was 14 hours and 22 minutes at this event called Rocky raccoon. So, um, you know, it's really cool to have someone like in your life that's got that much passion about the sport and, mm. uh, you can kind of, you know, reflect on things with, and, you know, they know what you're going through and you know what they're going through, which certainly helps. Um, I've had a guy who's uh, crewed for me a number of times at some of my more successful runs called Rich McKnight. You know, he lives out here near me in Scottsdale. 
uh, Arizona. So he's been at all, all my track ultras where I've done well. And then Javelina, he's been there too for that. So, uh, he's definitely always willing to help out. So it's, it's cool to have people like that who, uh, you know, you don't feel like you're necessarily burdening so much by asking them to help you out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's so important to, to have those, those people in your life too, especially cause you're, you're doing so much training and there's so much involved in what you do that, uh, you know, from someone, from my perspective, you know, you just see the highlight reel, but inevitably there's failures and there's everything that goes along with that. And so if you don't have that support group or, um, you know, even Nicole just being so, uh, in tune with what you're actually doing, then, uh, it, it would get very, very hard. Um, but, uh, you know, ultra distance aside, do you think a two hour marathon is possible for anyone? <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I think it's hard to say anything is impossible because we would have probably said the same thing about 205 not too long ago. But like, um, it seems like there's going to have to be some kind of breakthrough, whether it's a very kind of manipulated course or like, you know, a new type of like, I don't know, training approach that we haven't seen yet or just a new generation. I think a new generation of runners maybe. Um, I don't know that we're going to see it from anyone currently kind of at their peak, but, uh, I could easily be proven wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if it does happen in our generation, then, you know, kudos to them. Um, what do you, do you have a book or a video that you've recently been watching or reading that has inspired you? Uh, let's see, uh, book or video. Um, I've been, uh, I've been reading, um, what's it called? Uh, How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald has been pretty, is a pretty good one in terms of just kind of looking at like the psychology of, of running and kind of what role that plays in mm. to it. So I haven't been reading it nearly as fast as I would like I've been reading it in bits and chunks. So um, I should give it a justice and read it straight through. But uh, that's been kind of a cool one or an eye opening one as well. Mm, yeah. All right. So I'll, I'll put that in the show notes and everything that they've, we've been discussing in this podcast will all be in the show notes as well. I have an extensive list of notes right in front of me. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I uh, came from being a musician uh, into what I do now. Uh, and, and so I love hearing people's um, music tastes or what they're currently listening to. Is it, it, do you listen to music while you're out on the trails or is it something that you leave for, you know, does it get distracting and, and, and what music do you, uh, or are you listening to currently? Yeah, I'll listen to music more so during like workouts and stuff like that, where there's like a little more up tempo, but you know, I'm, I'm so bad at like actually digging into like the good music, I guess, as opposed to like what's just kind of available in popular yeah. culture. Yeah. Uh, but I do, I do like, I guess if I had to pick like a genre, kind of like a classic rock genre or yeah. you know, ACDC type of thing or something like that. It's usually uh, where I'll go to when I, when I bring in music. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I think also the start of your podcast has, has some pretty rip and rock in there, yeah. <laughs> which is awesome. Um, and so, you know, as an ending question, um, what would you tell someone that's transitioning from a marathon into an ultra marathon? Uh, you know, what, what's some of the advice that you would give someone like that? And then and what are the, some of the things that you wouldn't tell them before they actually got into running an ultra? Yeah. Um, 
I tell them to kind of like lean on their experience. I mean, running a marathon, I still think the marathon is probably one of the harder distances to really nail because it's just fast enough that you have to be pushing hard, but it's just long enough that if you push too hard too early, you're going to be really suffering at a pretty high pace. Um, so kind of carry that forward and know that just because it's a longer distance doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be harder. It's just going to be different. So just pay kind of close attention to the variables that change as you move up in distance. And I think the most obvious one is kind of the long run, whereas you get into ultra marathons, like that specific variable, whether it's like one really long run or back to back long runs tend to kind of move the needle a little more, I think, in terms of being able to wrap your mind around what you're about to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something I wouldn't tell them is I probably wouldn't tell them some of the like, you know, dropout stories or horror stories because <laughs> I wouldn't want to deter them from kind of progress forward. Uh, uh, but I think just generally being kind of supportive in sense of like, uh, you know, why, why couldn't you? I mean, I think mm-hmm. a lot of ultra runners can pinpoint a point in their life where if you would have told them you're going to run X amount of miles or this race or run this fast at this distance, they would have laughed at you. So uh, you know, I think anytime you put a limitation on yourself, you're taking a step back. So definitely wouldn't try to put any limitations on their, on their goals or anything like that. Yeah, that, that's such great uh, advice. And, uh, I guess something, um, that's pretty close to me as well, because I always had this envision that I did the half marathon and I was just going to skip the full marathon and it, it, just go straight to ultras, you know, because there's this stigma of when someone says, oh, I've run a marathon, they say, what time did you do? And then when someone uh-huh. says, w- I, ran, I ran an ultra and you go, wow, how how long was it? And, you know, the, the, there's right. less of a stigma about time. And I guess uh, from my perspective anyway, I guess when it comes to being an elite, um, you know, you, you definitely are focused on that time. But I guess it's more about uh, getting out there and doing those long runs. So, so yeah, that's some really inspiring advice um and 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 lastly i just wanted to to thank you so much for being here on the podcast um because i know i know how much time it takes out to actually you know not only come on and 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 do this type of thing but all the scheduling that goes behind it and i'm sure that uh you you know you're you're an extremely busy guy so i just wanted to say from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for being here and um and and from for all the listeners as well um you know you're such an inspiring well-spoken guy that that just you know doesn't let any sort of um hiccups or you know i don't know it's it's really hard to put it into words (laughs) and i was really i was really nervous you know going into this interview because uh, you know, just watching some of the stuff that you've done is just unbelievable. So, um, yeah, really, thank you so much. And 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 lastly, where can people find you? Yeah, um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It was a blast. I always love coming on and chatting about stuff. So um, you have a pretty cool format here. Um, so it's definitely my pleasure. Yeah, folks can find me in a couple spots I'm most active. Uh, head over to my website at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. And I got links to most of my stuff from that website. I'm getting more active on Instagram, which is just at uh, Zach Bitter. So at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. So um, if you want to kind of see what I'm up to on a daily basis, come uh, join me over there on Instagram or check out the website. Yeah. And the podcast as well, the Human Performance Outliers. If you're you're already listening to this podcast, stop what you're doing right now, pause the podcast, go and subscribe to them. And then come back and listen to the remaining few seconds of this podcast because uh, it's, it, you know, 
there's some nuggets inside that podcast and you guys do such a great job. Uh, so, yeah, th- thanks again and, um, and I'm sure I'll speak to you soon. All right, thank you so much, Aaron. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this podcast, make sure you hit subscribe to be notified next week when the podcast arrives. If you could do one small act of kindness for today, I would greatly appreciate a review from you. It's really easy and it allows me to keep making podcasts just like this one every week just for you. Head on over to fatforweightloss.com.au forward slash podcasts for the latest updates and all the show notes. Until next week.